I'm Angie Carrero. Welcome to another In Deep, two related topics today. Next hour, liberal messaging in the broadcast future, radio, podcast, the whole works. We start small this hour, micro small with low power FM. Those stations cover anything from 12 blocks to 12 miles, and they're filling in gaps corporate radio has left behind. The history and the how-tos of LPFM coming up on In Deep. I'm called Little Oh, it's the buttercup, the sunshine of our lives. It would be our very own coming in from the politicalcarnival.net. It's got to laugh. Politics is weird and creepy. (laughs) But she's not. She's fresh as a buttercup. Hey, girl. I love that intro so much. But listen, I was thinking, I, I was thinking of Always asking, dangerous. I, because I'm a Democrat and we are very giving we type people. Uh, I was going to ask Willard Romney over for coffee and donuts or as he likes to call them, chocolate goodies. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want him coming in and like totally wrecking my house. Oh, so surely he would not. Perish the thought. You don't think he would? Well, since we both have evidence at hand. <laughs> yes, in fact, it seems to be what he did this week. He totally did. He went to Iowa, and where he had those chocolate goodies, uh, it was the same cafe where he kind of ruined the cafe. He, he and his little crew of campaigners um, came in and left the place a big mess and never even met with the owner, and that really, really got her upset. Um, she said things like, you know, they forgot their manners and uh, how, how he kind of just... It ruined and and broke things her dad's picture an emblem her dad gave her when i guess when she was younger that they they can't replace and i was thinking to myself you know if this is how he and bain capital kind of threw away livelihoods the way he threw away the stuff that that was in the cafe and and how he kind of broke employees the way he fired them That's, so wow it is like an analogy for his entire business life it really is. And this is going to be what he's like when he, I should, not when he, oh my goodness, if he wins. Uh, that was a, a slip. I'm sorry about that. that I'm too me, terrified to go on. <laughs> I know. Well, do you have her talking? Because she says it better than I ever okay, could. Okay, this is, this is the cafe owner reacting to Mitt's uh, reactions. Well, he responded, well, I'm sorry that your tablecloths got ripped off, watered up, and thrown in the back room. And I took it as a mocking. Man, and she was ready to like, yeah, I think this guy does not grasp what a small business is to a small business owner. And she made a really good point, too. She said, you'd think he would have, we would have been treated better with how he treated me. Is that how he's going to treat others? You know, if he gets into office, is he going to be that way to us little people? Now, she nailed it with that one. Absolutely. In fact, I came across a little datum on the Internet this week that says probably the worst element of all of being rich, the rich have, this is a psychologist speaking, a harder time reading emotions in other people's faces, especially less well-off people. They can't see how sad you look while serving their fancy coffee. Wow. Yeah, creepy stuff. That was good. That's pithy. Yes. Hey, speaking of pithy, there was a pithy (laughs) and wonderful woman on the floor of the house in Michigan this week. Indeed, there certainly was. Uh, Representatives Barb Byram and Lisa Brown were trying to get an amendment introduced that applied the same rules to vasectomies that the GOP male lawmakers wanted to add to uh, their abortion services. And so uh, Majority Leader Jim Stamus, I think is how you say it, Mm -hmm. was, quote, uncomfortable with her saying vasectomy. And um, he she didn't even know why they were banned off the floor and she didn't know why they had been banned. Um, And I was saying, like, war on women. What war on women? That no, 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 no war on women. But, but no. yeah, it was, it was, of course, not the word vasectomy that really set them off. No. Then another one. Oh gosh, what was his name? I've got his name sitting here. Um, 
the one we've been talking about. Oh, Colton. <laughs> Michael, Michael Colton. Michael Colton was offended by the word vagina, which is, by the way, the medically uh, acceptable word to use. Uh, you know, he can, as I said, penetrate uh, a woman with an ultrasound probe or, or, or a vagina with an ultrasound probe, and he can boink a vagina. <laughs> but apparently, and he, he can't, he can do that in mixed company, by the way, but he can't say the word in mixed company. Yes, he thought this, well, let, let's hear what she had to say. I have not asked you to adopt and adhere to my religious beliefs. Why are you asking me to adopt yours? And finally, Mr. Speaker, I'm flattered that you're all so interested in my vagina, but no means no. Yeah, honey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? She's Jewish. And it seems to me that if a Jew is presenting religion as an argument, they're not accepting it as valid. It, in, in that in Michigan, but if Catholics do the same thing, that's acceptable. I'm not understanding any part of this entire uh, whatever this event that happened. I mean, this it, there's so much crammed into this; it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, no pun. <laughs> <laughs> and to clarify Brown's point, she said that the abortion regulation bills violate her Jewish religious beliefs because those dictate that pregnancy must be aborted to save the life of the mother if necessary. So they're Thank negating you, not only her right to control over her body, but her right to her own religion. Exactly. Thank you. I, I sort of just didn't say that in context at all, did I? But yeah, that is absolutely right. And so I, I haven't seen anybody write about that. So I threw a line in in my post. But um, it, that's a valid thing. I mean, the Catholics are making a huge deal about the contraceptive issue. Uh, but we can't have a Jew present her point of view. Now, Laffy's got some more to give us, so we're going to go online for the rest. You can find the extended version of this at indeepradio.com. You, my dear, have another blunt out, and you've got about 20 seconds to tell people about it. What's it about? Oh, oh, this was about uh, I, the, the Citizens United ruling, and I, I had a couple of people sing about Citizens United and what a travesty it was in Wisconsin. Excellent. And, and the blunts are where you get video and audio from people around the world, and, and they go ahead and get edited together, and it's your own production. So you can check that out, along with all of Laffy's news tips at thepoliticalcarnival.net. Thank you, ma'am, as ever you're wonderful, and some folks will follow us online to hear the rest. Thank you. All right. It's in deep. I'm Angie Cuero. Our topic this hour is low power FM, LPFM, as we'll discuss it through the rest of the hour. Uh, pirate radio, you may have heard it once uh, once described. There are different levels of reality here. Pirate radio means unlicensed, it means that you're not supposed to be on the air, but you are. Uh, LPFMs used to be what they called a Class D license, the lowest class of FCC license. And LPFMs have come into new light with legislation that was signed into law by President Obama last year and with a very supportive FCC by its side, unlike earlier incarnations of the FCC. So we thought this was a good time to take stock of LPFM. Let's see what's going on in Low Power FM. And in light of our next hour, which is going to be about the future of liberal programming, we'll see how LPFM can be effective getting messages out to small communities as opposed to the big broadcasts. We're going to go first to KDEE in Sacramento, where the host and content director, Tristan Mays, is on the line with us. Tristan, thanks for taking time out of your schedule. Oh, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. How old is KDEE? It is, at this particular point, 2004. That makes us about eight years old. That's ancient in LPFM turns. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And it's been an uphill climb the whole way. Talk about that a little bit. Tell me who set it up and what they anticipated, what they got. Okay, well, the California Black Chamber of Commerce, uh, which is an economic uh, nonprofit organization, they got the okay to get a license in 2004. 
um, with that came the responsibility of broadcasting to a community that was tremendously underserved for a capital city here in California, um, most predominantly the African-American community. Um, we were trying to speak to that need using the power of radio, but, you know, low-power FMs, you have, you know, can you, can you hear it? How far does it go? How strong is it? And where are they being heard? And that has been the uphill climb since day one. Mm-hmm. What unexpected bumps in the road were there? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, like most low-power FMs, uh, encroachment from some larger station because traditionally you're licensed as a second co-channel. Uh, that might be two 101.1s in one area. One's a small signal, one's a large signal. Of course, the large signal knocks out the smaller signal. That was typically how the FCC had went about licensing a lot of these facilities. Mm-hmm. Do you find that nowadays you, you need to protect your turf online, or are those battles part of the past? Well, those battles were part of the past, but for us, when I came on board, uh, trying to just simply be heard in the communities we were trying to reach because of encroachment and translator applications and construction permits, which were never acted upon, we were just hamstrung into just covering, I don't know, maybe about two miles or so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because already as we're talking about some of the things that, that you've encountered, and when I say you, I mean the whole station, these would be the bumps in the road for a corporate radio station. That These are written in the budget. Any problems you have, you know, either getting the word out that you're there or fighting off people infringing on your signal, that's anticipated and that's covered by the money. And I think one of the biggest challenges for LPFM is even anticipating how much it's going to cost, let alone finding the money to do it. Yeah, well, you know, that that was anything I think Wilkesburg tries to do. It's money. It's always at the bottom line of it. But there's ways to get it done, but getting the support from the people in the community who it was going to serve, that's, that's part of the deal. You know, you have to kind of work hand in hand. So. Mm-hmm. And we have lots of corporate sponsors, lots of regular everyday donors. Um, the impact we're making on the market, well, because there's no urban AC outlet here, that speaks to grown folks, so to speak. That's our line, the grown folks station. <laughs> um, because there's no market that actually speaks to that component, um, we've decided to take on a huge responsibility. And people have been coming to us. I mean, the phones have been ringing like crazy once we got the frequency problems solved. Mm-hmm. It is an absolutely wonderful thing to come in every morning and the phones are ringing before we even say hi. Wow. You know, it's a, it's a tangent, admittedly, but... I grew up outside Chicago, and I do remember in the in the 70s and 80s, especially on the FM dial, black radio seemed to be in its heyday. I will never forget the voice that you, the WBMX signal, was just yeah, memorable. Sure. And I, I guess that, you know, one of the benefits of low-power FM is when something falls out of commercial favor for whatever reason or is, you know, blown out of the water, LPFM can, can kind of replace that to some extent, at least on the local front. Well, you know, what's been wonderful is the fact that um, we, we are a true urban AC station. I mean, we, we're, we're a true black station, so to speak. Uh, we don't play the regular stuff you would normally hear on an urban AC corporate-run station. Most stations play about six, seven, maybe 800 songs. We started with 1,200, and we've been growing it. I think we're up to about 7,000 now. It allows us to deliver music that's wrapped around the information and what's going on in the community with news and programming that actually affects you trying to get into college or trying to find a better job or what does this health care act mean? Um, so we tie it all in together because of because this market was absolutely starving. As for any other low-power FM, you have to pretty much do what the market dictates. Where's the hole? Where's the niche that you can fill? 
I'm talking to Tristan Mays. You will find him online at KDEE. That's two E's, KDEEFM.org. KDEE is in Sacramento, low power FM there as we discuss LPFM this hour. Uh, Tristan, let's talk a little bit about that responsibility to the public that you have. Ironically enough, we've been asking over the last few days, we've asked people to check in online at IndeepRadio.com and talk about their impressions of where liberal radio needs to go. And one of the first things that came up and by the way, that's our topic for the next hour for our listeners to know. One of the first things that came up was Pacifica and all the troubles that Pacifica has. And in terms of what a low-power FM would face, they might fall into one of the same traps, which is the public is not monolithic. When you tell someone that as a public you own an interest in the station, we are here for you, everybody may not agree about what that is. So for you as an entity and for you as a content director, how do you know to draw the line in the sand to say, we're not going to please everybody, so this is what we're going to do? Well, you know, we started off calling it the community radio station, then the low-power community station. Then we moved to the grown folk station for using that simple way of identifying us. People have wondering, what's the grown folk station? What does that mean? Well, we deal with things that affect you if you're, you're grown. You know, you have to figure out how to address what, the community is asking for. And a lot of times they'll tell you on the phone, can we hear this? Did you mention this early? Can you correct that for me? Or can you give me some more information on that? And it's about getting eye level. Talk about the stuff that affects the people where you live. Mm-hmm. But you, I mean, that shouldn't, I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. But, but I mean, of course, you know, you're always going to have the person who's not going to be happy, the person you can't satisfy. So is it essentially majority rule? Well, yeah. We open up the phone lines and you, your, your opinion is, is welcome. You may not agree. <laughs> you may you may not agree very strongly, but your opinion counts. And where else are you going to voice your opinion? Most of the times you're left to sit in your living room and just grumble about it. With this radio station, we actually cherish your voice. We want to know what you think. What's your opinion? When we do the chocolate news every day, which is uh, uh, black news, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, people call and they don't agree with me. And sometimes I'll say something I know I should have said that, but it <laughs> sounded good at the time. <laughs> and... um. Whether you agree with me or you, 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 you think I'm an absolute idiot, thank you for participating because how do you feel about it? And that's the most important thing. How do you feel in our community? What's going on with these issues that are affecting you, your family, your bottom line? Is your personal background in, in traditional commercial radio? <laughs> wow. Real long, real long. And when this opportunity came up, I said, hmm, let's see. To do something different, to do something real, to get boots on the ground and get back to the people. I'm on board. Yeah, I've been CBS, Clear Channel, Andrew. Yeah, I, I, list goes on and on. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. The world weariness in your voice is, is just a joy to hear. So tell me what the difference has been for you. And, and I'd prefer to hear, if, if there's anything that comes to mind, what surprised you about this transition that you didn't expect? Well, um, I guess the most important thing is we, we, you know, we were dealing with this encroachment thing up until last year. I mean, people could hear us, they couldn't hear us, they wanted to listen, but they would lose us after a mile or two. When we got off of that second co-channel and found an independence channel at 97.5, I mean, we flipped the switch at 9 o'clock in the morning. We went out to the transmitter, did everything, I got back here. We generally get one or two phone calls, you know, every now and then. When we walk back in the door, every line lit up. We have 12 lines. We never used 12 lines prior to that. And we walked in the door, all the lines are ringing. Me and my boss are like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> and it has been absolutely 
phenomenal. The people, you know, they don't like the other station. They play the same stuff all the time. And every time I turn you, they're playing commercials. We don't play commercials. We play lots of information that helps you, you know, do what it is you need to do, how to figure out how you got this mortgage crisis, where the jobs are, what information do you need to know about your health that you're not getting on a traditional radio station. So uh, just listening to the people respond to I met a woman at one of our events who said to me, you know, I listen every day for Black Health Now because they tell me good stuff I need to know. That was great, except for she was an African-American. And I love that. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, when you're talking about the size of your signal, remind me again how, how many people are hearing you. Well, we well because of the contour of Sacramento, our signal goes a little further than most low power FMs. Most low power FMs go about three and a half miles. We could go closer to probably twelve in a circle. Wow. Um, I would put that somewhere around I don't know eight hundred thousand people because most people come into Sacramento and they leave to go home. Mm-hmm. So during that time of the day, I would say I would put us up somewhere about eight hundred thousand, which is nice. It's a real nice thing. What's the nature of the LPFM license now? If if you want to get advertising, can you get it? Are you are you restricted to underwriting? How does that work? Well, you know, you have to get creative. <laughs> you have to get really creative when it comes to sponsors and underwriting because you know you can't actually sell products, but you can endorse things that that somehow help what's going on in the community. If there's a community benefit to it, you have to find a way of presenting both the sponsor and the event without it seeming like an opportunity for the listener to spend money again. And that's the true challenge because, you know, most low-power FMs, we're surviving by whoever we can get a penny from. But if you make it important and you start speaking to the things that are impacting people's lives, you'll find the advertisers will call you. Oh, a good situation. We'll go more into that in our next segment. We've got a few more minutes with Tristan Mays. He's the host and contact director of KDEE in Sacramento. We're talking all this hour about low-power FMs. Moving into the next hour, and I do want you to stick around for that, liberal radio progresses. How does it progress into the future? We know that radio exists everywhere now. It's terrestrial. It's satellite. It is online. It's in podcast. How do we get a liberal message out there as widely as possible? That's our topic in the next hour. Special interview you online only for this topic lpfm and that is pirate radio master stephen dunifer of the original free radio berkeley you'll find that interview online only at indeepradio.com you can follow us online at twitter at indeepradio i'm angie coro stick around for more
It's in deep. I'm Angie Cairo on the topic of LPFM, Low Power FM. A lot of the history of that listed for you online at indeepradio.com. And in the next hour, we go into the progression of liberal radio into the future. Right now, I'm talking to Tristan Mays, who's with KDEE in Sacramento. Tristan, we were talking right before the break about getting money in the door any way that you can. And in our next hour, we're focusing more on the liberals who might want to set up their own sort of radio. But I'm sure a lot of people listening here what might be listening to the idea of LPFM for the first time and wondering if they can get into that. So how does one go about estimating what it costs to do this sort of thing? Well, uh, the first thing I would do, I would, I would call somebody who's already doing it. Um, as we are, it costs us probably about 30000 to get everything up and running. And after that, it's, it's how much can you afford to pay your staff, what type of technology is in place so you can cut down your manpower hours. But for the most part, I guess you could get everything up and running under, say, 20000 20, tops on a good day. <laughs> on a good <laughs> day. day. Well, the good day. So. Although I did notice that when you were talking about, you know, getting the interference off your transmitter, you said when you came back from the transmitter and came to the station, that gives you a little hint there that the more people who can, be, who can do the all hands on deck, people who can wear many hats, are maybe the best fit for this kind of thing. Oh, yeah. There are people who are going to work with you. Well, because there's so, you, you and I both know there are so many broadcast professionals out of work who still have a passion for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, give them an opportunity to get involved because their years of knowledge and, and know-how, know how to get it done is going to be invaluable for you to keep it going once you get it started. Getting on the air is the easy part. That's really the easy part. Keeping it going and making an impact in the community, you serve, that's the true challenge. But if you stay true to your mission statement, you won't go that far off the path. Well, about that mission statement, is that something that has to be expressed when you apply for your license, or is that something that can evolve as you go? Well, that can evolve as you go. As long as you're not some corporate giant or big business trying to do it, if you're really trying to do something in the community, it's not very hard. I mean, the filing is free. (laughs) The information on how to file and what to say and who to contact is free. And there's lots. Oh, i got to give big props to Prometheus Radio in Philadelphia, my hometown. Uh, Their efforts to get people on board on... I mean, what paperwork to file, who to talk to, what do you need to know, what type of equipment. They are instrumental, absolutely imperative to getting it done. So I would say that. Well, that was a well-timed pitch because Vanessa Graber with Prometheus is going to be on with us in just about five minutes. So very okay, well-timed. Well, Vanessa, I said, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Thank you. And this is true low-power communication from one person to the next. We're talking about LPFM with Tristan Mays at KDEE in Sacramento. Tristan, talk to me about fundraising from amongst your listeners. Is that something KDEE does? Yes, we do. We, um, people say, what can I do? We love your station, but we can't hear it. Is there something we can do? Well, you know, you can always buy a T-shirt, but, you know, we like donations. The kind that jingles is cute, but we need the kind that folds or the kind you take to the bank to get cash. We need your help. We want to do it for you. Um, it's okay to solicit your listeners because those are the ones who are going to benefit the most, and those are the ones who will care the deepest. You know what I wonder about is is the younger generation coming up. I sound like, you know, get off my porch, you young people. But the younger generation coming up is is used to a stream of free information. I wonder about just informing them that there is a value here, that it's not free. 
Well, you know, youngsters don't listen to radio. <laughs> they just don't. They don't get it. They have iPods, TV, satellite, cable. For radio to work, it has to be directed toward a specific audience. I mean, and those are the ones that are underserved in your area. If you can find a way to reach them and what they care about and the things that matter to them most, your audience is just ready to go. Oh, which is why you're grown-up radio. Mm. <laughs> radio, radio for the adults. Yeah, that, there it is. Well, you know, I'm about to let you go, but I want to make sure that we've, we've covered all the bases for anyone who wants to get into the LPFM movement. We already got word from you that Prometheus is the place to check out, and that is on our website at indeepradio.com. People can click the link there. Uh, we can have them go to your station to see how it's done. Any other wisdom you'd like to impart? Yes, stick to your guns. You're going to run into all types of speed bumps. It's not an easy thing, but it is doable. Just stick to your guns, get information, and bring people on board who care about what you're doing for the community. That's who will help you make it happen. Tristan Mays, it's just been a joy. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Tristan Mays, KDEE Sacramento. In Deep Radio is a production of Talkback Media. We are supported in part by our listeners. Talkback Media produces discussions on key political, social, and cultural issues available for live, digital, audio, and video venues. Learn more online at indeepradio.com. And if you are in a position to help us keep on the air, click one of the PayPal links on the side of the page. One-time gifts or a small monthly donation, whatever works for you. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to In Deep Radio, and you're hearing us on commercial radio stations or online, but we're talking this hour about low-power FM, the, what they used to be the Class D FCC license, and you've probably heard as well of pirate radio. This is not pirate radio. This is a small-scale licensed use of the public airwaves. And if you'd like to learn more about how to do that, one of the best stops, as one of our earlier guests already mentioned, Tristan Mays told you to check out prometheusradio.org. We have that link up on our website at indeepradio.com. So we turn to their own community radio director, Vanessa Graber. She's also active in Occupy Circles. She's one of the founders of Occupy Philly. Vanessa, thank you for taking out some time for us. Oh, my pleasure to be talking to you from Houston, Texas at the National Community Radio Conference. Yeah, it's it's great to have you down there, and I want to know what kind of faces you're seeing, what kind of interest people have. But let me start things out with Prometheus Radio, because being there really gives you a view about who it is who's intrigued by the idea of low power and who would come to you for the idea about how it's done. So give me some idea, the, the age range, you know, the, the class range, you know, different races, different colors, different, you know, who, who applies for or who looks into a low power FM now? Well, we've had a real variety of people who um, have expressed interest in starting a station. And, of course, you know, since all this Occupy stuff has been going on and people are seeing the way social movements all around the world are being covered, we're seeing a lot more interest from grassroots peace and social justice groups who, you know, want to transform uh, the media and their local communities. We're also seeing a lot of interest from uh, Spanish-language organizations who'd like to preserve the, the culture and history of, um, you know, those people, especially in the Southwest and, and border states. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of people just interested in playing independent music that's really not heard on the radio uh, because of mass 
consolidation from companies like Clear Channel, you know, who don't actually play um, a lot of local talented artists uh, in cities across the country. So I'm here in Houston, you know, where there's a rich jazz, blues, and Tejano local music scene, and a lot of the music isn't played on mainstream media. But luckily, they have some really great public and community radio stations here where they're actually able to show off the talent from the local city. So it's it's kind of cool to come to these cities and actually hear that. But unfortunately, um, that's not the way it is in most of the country. It's fascinating you brought up music. I, I, I'm such a talk radio head and such a public radio head from so many years in that business that I didn't really think about the fact that, of course, corporate radio has decimated the music front, too. So that's something we haven't talked about at all this hour. Let me probe into that a little bit. If, for example, I'm a person who thinks that a certain band of music is underserved and needs to be preserved, I go to Prometheus, and what's the case that they can help me to make to the FCC that my dream to put that music out there is a valid enough reason for me to have a license? Well, unfortunately, the FCC doesn't care if you play cartoons all day or if you play really groundbreaking Pulitzer Prize-winning journalism. Um, they don't really put an emphasis on content at all. What matters is that your application is completed, you meet all the requirements, and that your engineering is uh, 100%. And so that's what we really help people with. Because the FCC is a government bureaucratic agency, you have to kind of go through this long, rigorous process of paperwork and um, a timeline and steps. So there's just so much process and bureaucracy. And so we try to help guide people through that and keep them motivated because it can take several years to actually get on the air in between the time you submit your application. When you're preparing an application for the FCC and you're getting everything else all lined up, one of the things that we heard from one of our earlier guests is that for every possible license, there are many, many applicants. So do I need to, are the odds that I should prepare myself for disappointment? Well, I maybe have to try more than once to finally get a license. Well, it depends where you live. What we're seeing is that in rural areas, that there's actually not a, comp- a lot of competition for the licenses because there's many more frequencies available. However, in urban areas, if the FCC allows licenses on second adjacency, um, that means um, these uh, frequencies that are available that are spaced closer together to other stations, um, then you'll see a lot more competition. So, for example, in a city like Philadelphia, where Prometheus is based, out of there are two possible second adjacent frequencies, and we've already heard from at least 30 groups that are interested in them. Um, it's likely only one or two will actually get the license. So what we're really trying to encourage people do, to do is to find a way to collaborate and work together with everybody and also to consider the possibility of a timeshare. So a lot of people don't know that sometimes when these groups are all competing against each other, there is no one winner because everyone uh, has the possibility of submitting an equally as good application. And they don't have a good way to do a tiebreaker when everybody gets the same amount of points. So what they do in the worst case scenario is they have these timeshares and that means you would have to share the station with other groups. And that will be really, really difficult, especially if you don't share the same values. Mm -hmm. Um, However, if you start to collaborate now and figure out ways to work together to produce media, um, it will make that process a whole lot easier. 
You know, and the other problem you can sidestep if that were the approach you were to take is what I imagine is a scenario that must play out occasionally, which is that someone bites off more than they can chew when they say, I'm going to get a license for an LPFM. And they don't realize what it takes to keep a signal up, to keep programming going, to have to show up, to be there when somebody else said they would and didn't. Uh, maybe a timeshare is a way to ease into it instead. Um, it could be, um, except, you know, usually in timeshares you have a lot of different formats. So you might have a religious station, a Spanish language station, a music station, and some kind of like arts and cultural station. And in that case, you're not really serving the public interest, you know, in the best way that they could be. And so, um, you know, it's, it's not really ideal. And I also want to note that LPFMs are so much easier to get on the air than these full power stations. So in 2007 and 2010, when the FCC licensed full power non-commercial radio stations, um, it was very much the case that there were many organizations who didn't realize what they were getting into because they had to raise several hundred thousand dollars in three years or less to get the station on the air. And when folks were applying in 2007, we didn't have an idea that, you know, the economy was going to tank the way that it was. And so um, we've tried to lobby the FCC to extend the amount of time you have to get on the air, but they're not really sympathetic and, in fact, think that if stations can't raise the money to get on the air, then they shouldn't be on the air and they should transfer license elsewhere. Um, but I think it's different with LPFM because the equipment is so cheap. You can get equipment used and it takes very little to actually power the station because it's only 100 watts. So I think there will be some difficulty, but I think that will be the exception and not the rule. Talking to Vanessa Graber, Community Radio Director for PrometheusRadio.org, that is Startup Central for LPFMs. And we don't have the usual clear signal we have in our conversation because we called her on site. There is an annual event going on right now in Houston. It is the NFCB Community Radio Conference. That's the conference of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. So, Vanessa, let me ask you about that. Prometheus, of course, is a very reasonable group to be there. You're talking to people who already do or who want to connect with their community through broadcast. Give me an idea of what you're seeing there. Are these people who, are are there dreamers there? Are there people who are already playing the game? Who all is there? Um, A lot of overachievers. (laughs) I think that Anyone who wants to do community radio um, is is slightly overachieving and, and a little bit crazy, um, and um, you have to be very passionate about it. And the great thing about these conferences is they offer a great deal of uh, training, resources, and information, and of course access to this amazing network of people you know who have really really great ideas to share. And when you start doing radio, you realize quickly that there's an awful lot to learn. And so, you know, I'm trying my best to network with a lot of the tech people, which is my uh, specific deficiency, to figure out different ways to transmit and, and broadcast and, and use Internet technologies to supplement FM broadcasts. I'm glad you brought that up because, of course, that's that's key to understanding what's happening in broadcast right now is that some, quote-unquote, broadcasting isn't even broadcast per se. Some community radio exists only on the Internet, which is kind of a – it's kind of a mix of concepts because Internet, by its very definition, is worldwide. 
And yet I have heard of, and you can confirm this for me or tell me I'm misinformed, I've heard of internet radio stations that are set up with the idea of distributing local information. Do you do these folks have a presence at the conference? Yeah, in fact, um, there's folks from CHIRP, which is the Chicago Independent Radio Project, um, and they are from Chicago, Illinois, and they have a fully functional independent radio station, and they have over 100 volunteers. They really engage people of color and youth in urban areas, and they do a lot of local coverage of issues that impact those communities. Um, they have been really supportive in our campaign with the FCC to uh, advocate for more LPFM, and they, in fact, will be applying for a station. Um, but you're seeing an evolution um, of, of community radio, and that's really highlighted at the conference here, where there's a move from community radio to community media, and that means um, working together with other media-making outlets in your community and also making media across platforms, so having a website that's interactive, using social media, and I did a, a workshop on mobile applications for radio. So just using all these tools in your toolkit to make your content and your, um, you know, your, the values that you share um, more easily accessed across all these different platforms. Vanessa, we've got about 60 seconds left, and I wonder if you can define for me, if it's not too broad a question, success for a commercial radio station is selling a lot of commercials, making a lot of money. Success for a community radio station is what? Staying on the air. <laughs> you know, I think uh, that's, that's the number one thing, and, and a lot of these college radio stations are, are getting sold out from underneath the students, and so we're realizing, you know, that... Any time, you know, the station could should go down because we depend on listener support and grants and public funding to stay on the air since it's a completely different model. And the way to stay on the air is to stay relevant. And that means being connected to your community and really listening and dialoguing with your listeners. Vanessa, thank you so much for reporting live from the conference. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Vanessa Graber can be found online at PrometheusRadio.org. We'll put up links to her Occupy work, too, at InDeepRadio.com. I'm Angie Coyro. Stick around for more on Low Power FM.
head But everybody else is overwhelmed by indifference And the promise of an early bed You either shut up or get cut out They don't wanna hear about it Tony inches on the real to real And the radio is in the hands of such a lot of fools Trying to anesthetize the way that you feel Radio is a sound salvation It's In Deep Radio. I'm Angie Caro. We just heard from Vanessa Graber at the Prometheus Project, and we're going to talk to someone else who's put his time in with the with group as well. Petri Dish is with us, and if that sounds to you like Petri Dish, I do believe that is intentional. We can clarify that with him. His work on LPFM is widely known, and you can find information on him at PetriDish.com. Pete, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This marriage between you and Low Power FM, how did this come about? Well, uh, back in the mid-90s, I was um, an activist. I was working as a carpenter, and I was working on different causes around housing and uh, around uh, gardening and, and, and different uh, work in my neighborhood. And what I found I had in common with all the other people that were working in different movements for social change, uh, environmentalism and social justice, was that we felt that the, the, the media was really shortchanging us and that, uh, sure, we were able to go to the street corner and hold up a sign that says, don't do that, stop this now. But then our opponents would invariably get you know, five, ten minutes on the on TV where they would say why we were wrong and they were right, and it just seemed like it was really unfair. And then we started learning that all the the corporations that we were opposing were actually the owners of the radio stations and the TV stations, and so it all started to click for us, like why, you know, why um, our movements were losing uh, and 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 corporate America was winning, and so. I was part of a group that started a pirate radio station. Um, it was out of the back of my house. We called it Radio Mutiny. And and none of us had ever been on the radio. None of us knew anything about radio at the time. Uh, there, there were no real community radio stations in, in Philadelphia. And so we just, uh, we just sort of figured out how to do it. Uh, and we were part of a really large movement of people that were doing this at that time. There were about a thousand pirates on the air around around the United States in the mid nineties. Did, 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 did they all have some of the same motivations that you had? That same, you know, kind of tilting at the established machine to get an alternative message out? Well, they all had their own spin on it. Certainly, I mean, there were uh, there were progressive ones like us. There were people that were interested in a particular kind of music or a different you know, subculture, um, there were conservative ones, so they, they all had their own reasons exactly, but, but most of them, a lot of it had to do with was just that they didn't see their views and their interests represented by the, by the corporate owners of the media. Um, so, uh, you know, we just, we built this radio station and ran it for about two years, and 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 then uh, we got into more and more escalated confrontations with uh, with the Federal Communications Commission and the authorities. And then finally, something really surprised us, which was that the FCC switched sides, and they decided that for a long time they had opposed uh, community radio, uh, and their their chairman at that time 
switched and said, wait a second, I, you know, I, I actually, I can't condone people breaking the law, but, but corporate radio has kind of gone uh, extremely homogenous, and uh, it was in the context of the passage of the 1996 Telecom Act, which forced uh, the FCC to allow a massive consolidation of, of radio. Right. And what you started to see was that uh, whereas in most of the eight decades before of radio, there had been a lot of different independent local owners, and that was really hardwired into the law. Um, but in 1996, they removed all those ownership restrictions, and they started allowing um, single corporations to buy up thousands of stations and then use every local station to just rebroadcast a national program. And so you saw a loss of, of the localism of radio and, uh, and a narrowing of, of um, the content. And so the, the FCC switched sides and they said, okay, we're, you know, we can't, we can't just like give everyone back the local radio stations that have been bought up by the corporations, but we can certainly make a little bit more room on the dial. It's interesting that that, that that came about. I mean, there, there are a couple things that are reflective in today's market as you're talking. For example, you know, nowadays with Citizens United being the law of the land, it's even more disproportionate, the power of the money, you know, versus the people without the money. And the other thing that strikes me as you're talking is, is along with that 1996 Act, of course, we lost the Fairness Doctrine. And when people on the right want to bring up a boogeyman, they say, oh, my God, they're going to bring the fairness doctrine back, as though the loss of that act didn't represent a genuine loss to the public. Yeah, yeah. There there was this idea in broadcasting that if you are one of the small handful of people or companies that get a broadcast license, uh, that you, you owe something back to the public. And it was called your public interest requirements. And, you know, and among them was the Fairness Doctrine, you know, just this idea that you were going to, um, you know, up, give reasonable uh, opportunity to rebut uh, things that were one-sided that were on your station. And, and also just like some of the, the assumptions that had gone into the radio industry that, that you would do a certain amount of news and public public affairs programming that just uh, most radio stations decided was not profitable anymore. And that's, ironically, that's the whole point of it, the way you're describing Radio Mutiny and a lot of the other ones that popped up at the same time. That's really where they can pick up the slack, is that for community activists, it's all about what you're doing for the people around you, whereas with the loss of the Fairness Doctrine and the changes in 96, those files that radio stations used to have to keep, we called them, I was in radio at the time, we called them the good guy files. And you had to prove that you interacted with your community, that you did, you know, a certain amount of outreach, charitable work, a, a local show on Sunday, even if you were a music station. Uh, that's the thing that's lost, and that's what LPFM can pick up. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, at first we thought that the FCC was really, you know, the enemy. And, and in a lot of ways, uh, it has been in the pocket of, of corporate interests for a real long time. There's a, a very, there's a real revolving door between who works at the FCC and who works in, in these corporations. On the other hand, we, we discovered, uh, you know, a strain of, of people at the FCC that were like, what are, you know, finally some citizens are actually sort of recognizing this problem and, and they, um, they, they see a role, uh, you know, for for radio stations to do public interest programming, and that's, you know, that's what we were kind of 
uh, put here to, to make sure that there was uh, an element of that. Mm-hmm. So the, the ground shifted dramatically, and, and starting in 2000, the FCC uh, started helping community radio in its sort of clunky and arcane way. And then, really, it became a battle between uh, low-power FM advocates and uh, the National Association of Broadcasters, uh, and uh, ironically, also National Public Radio. Yeah, in fact, uh, although we don't have time to get into that in depth, I do want to point our listeners to an interview we have online only. Our web extra this week is with Stephen Dunifer, who's the founder of Free Radio Berkeley, and in our conversation with him, we go in depth into that unexpected but kind of rational once you look at a conflict between the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the smaller broadcasters. It is odd on the face of it. So we discussed that with him online. You can find it at indeepradio.com. I'm talking right now with Petri Dish, and he's one of the founders of Radio Mutiny. He's a, a used to be with the Prometheus Group, and in fact, you can still find him online at petridish.com, and we have that linked from our website, indeepradio.com. Uh, Pete, what do you see as the full manifestation and LPFM at its full power? What would that look like? Well, I... A lot of what we wanted to do when we started the Low Power FM service was was really see what would happen if you had a real neighborhood and small town broadcasting medium. And so, you know, one of the things, a lot of people typically think of the problem with media as being of one between the left and the right or, you know, these guys and those guys. Um, But what what I've come to really believe uh, is the is the the central question is this question of of local versus national programming, and so uh, there's there's a thing that economists call market failure in in media markets, and and the thing about media is uh, if you make one show and you distribute it uh, uh, just in your own hometown, and you get one advertising or underwriting revenue for that show, and it's of local interest. It's about the school board. It's about you know uh, about things in your town. Well, you know that used to be good enough for for people in radio, uh, and that that was the way things worked for a long time. Once you took down that barrier and you started having a, a show on a thousand stations, well, you could make this show this one show, and you could distribute it in a thousand places at once, and you could get a thousand advertising revenues for that for that single show and so the national uh the national content started to flood out the local content mm-hmm. and that's kind of the opposite of of what uh, our country needs for democracy because really you know you and I we only have like 1 300 millionth of a part of the decision of who's going to be the next president mm-hmm. and it's a Obviously, it's important that we vote in it, that we be well-informed about it. But on the other hand, you and I have a much bigger say in who ends up on the city council, who ends up on the school board, in the local issues that we can really meaningfully participate in. And that's exactly what, as Americans, we kind of know the least about. And it's because it doesn't pay to make media in the same way about these local issues. And so the market fails, uh, and and radio stations, uh, you know, just sort of tend towards doing what 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 does the best financially. 
So what Low Power FM does, first of all, they're non-commercial stations. So although they, they need money to survive and, you know, they, they take in underwriting revenue, like there's a little bit less of a profit motive there. The other thing is, with their limited coverage, they actually do have the time to cover the things that, like, a, a station that covers all of Los Angeles or all of Chicago wouldn't cover, like a local, like a concert, you know, in the park on the corner, or like a, a, a school board meeting, or, or like those sorts of local events. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons we were able to, to win passage of the Local Community Radio Act was because it really wasn't something that tilts to the left or to the right. What it tilts towards is towards local democracy and an expansion of local voice. You can see and, why some people uh, would not be in favor of that. Uh, certainly, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's certainly some good reasons that certain people would not like that. But it is, a, you know, a very, you know, deeply held value in the American system of government that, that there should be a local sector. And just like there's not only a president of the United States, but there's also city councilors and there's also um, local, you know, county commissioners and all those sorts of things. We shouldn't have just a media that is entirely focused on a national scale or even on a citywide scale, but we should also have a media that's focused on a neighborhood scale. I misspoke uh, Pete Redish's website earlier, so let me correct that. That's PeteTredish.net. Pete, the name Pete, T-R-I-D-I-S-H dot net. Uh, Pete, I want to ask you about some of the potential problems that might lay ahead for LPFM. We've talked primarily about the battles past, and that's with you and both online with Stephen Dunnifer. We've talked about the issues with NPR fighting LPFM expansion, and then, of course, there are moneyed interests that prefer not to see LPFM doing well. Are there still battles ahead, or is LPFM enough of a settled deal, and especially with the most recent legislation signed by Barack Obama, are we in a comfortable place where if someone wants to move into doing LPFM, they'll have a fairly smooth road doing it? Well, we're most of the way there. There is uh, one more proceeding before the FCC, which is where the FCC decides how exactly LPFM is going to be implemented. They've been given broad directions by Congress, and that's the job of Congress, is to kind of give broad, overarching directions. And then it's the job of the administrative agency to work out the details. And the opponents of Low Power FM are still trying in the, in the details to put little poison pills into the rules to make sure that it's difficult to get a station, it's difficult to operate them, and so on. Um, we, we're, we're pretty hopeful that that's going to go well. I, we think that the FCC understands the issues pretty well, and, and as long as they um, you know, are, are even mildly courageous in terms of you know, doing what's right for the public, or that, that should go well. So the, the next thing uh, is that uh, there aren't that many frequencies available for low power FM. Uh, it's not like the radio dial is infinite. It's just that there's some space on it that has previously been unused for, for local broadcasters. And so most cities, um, we hope, will end up with, you know, three, four, five, six, small new channels. Now, as you may know, radio stations sell for millions and millions of dollars, and these are free for non-commercial entities. And so anything that the government gives out for free, (laughs) um, uh, and that's worth millions and millions of dollars, you can imagine how many groups are going to compete for them. So if you you live in uh, Chicago or someplace like that, 
um, and there are two or three new channels for Vote Power Thumbs available, you can just bet that there will be 20, 25 different groups that are all vying for those channels. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, with the advice of groups like Prometheus Radio or, or others, um, you know, you can learn what helps to make your organization uh, competitive uh, in the process and, uh, you know, and, and, how to, and how to put together the station and how to, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, become like a, a successful community media organization. In the, um, in the remaining 60 seconds we have left, I want you to address the possibility that some inspired listener to this show is going to say, you know what, I've got the equipment, I don't need a license, let me just throw up a radio station. What's, what's the difficulty and the risk of going pirate? Well, you know, you face an $11,000 fine per unlicensed broadcast. And, um, you know, I, it was super fun being a pirate, and, you know, I, I took a lot of risks in doing so, and I, I can't say that I suffered for those risks. However, uh, I would say that the station, as cool and diverse and fun as it was running Radio Mutiny, we weren't really community radio because just a lot of people were afraid to participate. And so you'll never get as, you'll never get a community radio station that is as diverse and as beautiful as your community, as long as everybody is like hiding behind masks and, and scared to participate. And uh, that's, that's what changed my mind between, you know, being a buccaneer and being a community radio advocate was because this shouldn't be uh, like something that only the foolhardy or the uh, you know, do, it should be something that all Americans are, are able to do, is participate in the community radio. Pete, I really thank you for your time. It's been illuminating. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. and look forward to hearing the show. Pete at PeteRiedish.net, radio engineer, a policy advocate, and, by his own word, a troublemaker. I'm Angie Coro. This is Indeed. More on the radio, about the radio, in our next hour as we talk about ushering liberal programming into the future. Stick around for that. I'm Angie Cuero. This is Indeed. Thanks for tuning in this week to In Deep with Angie Cuero, a production of Talkback Studios. You can get more information about us at indeepradio.com. And while you're there, you can become a member and support our work. There's a link there to contact us, too, with any questions or feedback. We're developing a series on mental health issues in our country, especially in this economy, and we'd love to have you be part of that. Please send us your topic suggestions, your stories, and your questions through our website. Click the contact button at indeepradio.com. Join us again this time next week for two more hours of in-depth conversation. I'm Angie Carr. We'll see you then. You're listening to WPWC, 1480 AM, Dumfries, Virginia. We Act Radio, home of Washington's progressive working community.